Welcome back to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast, the podcast that helps you to do deals better and to do better deals. Today, the key subject is competition law and merger approvals. And I have the pleasure to welcome Oliver Bretz, who's the founder partner at Euclid Law, a firm based in London and Brussels that advises exclusively on merger filings and everything associated with competition law. Welcome, Oliver. I'm really happy you could make it to the studio. Thank you for having me. And Oliver, you're actually the first guest in this podcast series that I could have this conversation with in my native language, Dutch, because you're Belgian. Ja, maar als we het in het Nederlands doen, dan verstaan ze ons niet. Dus ik denk we gaan het wel in het Engels doen. Oliver just said probably won't be understood if we do this in Dutch. So let's continue in English. Oliver, you specialize in helping companies to get their proposed mergers approved. What do you, as a lawyer, like about M&A? It's a really good question. As lawyers, we spend a lot of time thinking about the law. But ultimately, what we are trying to do is help people do deals in the real world. And as you always say, do them better and do better deals. Now, when we look at an M&A deal, we obviously see it from a very different perspective. Because to us, it's all about risk and making sure that we minimize those risks and that we really explain clearly what those risks are and how those risks run through the M&A process. At the end of the day, if I'm acting for a client, I want their deal to go ahead. That's really my driving aspiration is to help them get the deal done. And I find that absolutely fascinating to be part of that team. And you win or lose? Yeah, I mean, you get an answer. I mean, it's one of the wonderful things about merger approvals in particular is that you make your filing you spend a lot of time arguing in front of the regulators. You do your very best for the client, sometimes over the weekend in difficult circumstances. But at the end of the day, you get an answer. And I think that is really fantastic because you have that moment where you really think, the deal has closed. It was worth it. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the themes running through this podcast series is that we want to get better at creating value through deals. And you've previously said to me that you see competition risk as part of deal value. Can you please explain that better from the perspective of both the seller and the buyer? Yeah, I thought you might remember that statement. I mean, fundamentally, if you have different offers in a competitive process, you can look at the value, whether it's euros, whether it's pounds, whether it's dollars, what is the value of that bid? But two bids that have identical dollar amounts on them could have very different risk profiles. And so when you look at what is attractive and what is not attractive, getting good competitional advice early is absolutely crucial in working out which horse you're going to be backing. So if you're acting for the sellers, quite often the challenge will be to get the board to understand what the risk profile is. And we have quite often used very simple matrices to just sort of say, look, this is amber, this is red, you know, so that the board can understand that even though there is a very large number on that particular deal, it may not be the best deal to do from a timing perspective, from a deal certainty perspective, and ultimately from a value perspective. Because the worst that can happen is that you end up with a deal that gets blocked and you have a business that is severely tainted through a very long drawn out process, which you as a seller didn't control. And so that's really the risk that we try to mitigate up front. And we really try to get the board to start thinking about this risk in terms of value. Yes, so you can actually translate 
deal completion risk into value when you assess bids that you have for a business. Indeed. And obviously, from the purchaser side, the same is true. So if you were advising a purchaser on what remedies they may have to give to get a deal through, they will have an immediate NPV impact. And being able to sort of say, look, the range of remedies is from X to Y allows the board, again, to factor that in to what they're going to pay for a particular target. Now, obviously, that will have to be weighed up against the synergies and all the sort of things that the bankers traditionally would do. But obviously, we play a very, very important role in being able to articulate what those remedies might be and then ultimately putting a value on those remedies. Clear. So let's go back to the beginning of a deal. So parties contemplating an M&A process, how can you help them with some advice about how to think about compliance risk in their transaction? And what sort of measures should you have in place early on to make sure you don't have problems in the merger approval processes later? Gosh, there's a lot wrapped up in that question. So let's try to disentangle it somewhat. The first point is, if you are setting up a data room and you are inviting competitors into that data room, you need to be aware that that could constitute an exchange of competitively sensitive information. So you're not going to allow the commercial director of a competitor to crawl all over your customer contracts. So how do you mitigate these things? Well, the first point is think very carefully about which parts of the data room you're going to switch on at which stage in the process. So a phased approach to the data room is already a sensible mitigation. Beyond that, it is now quite usual and really expected by competition authorities that if you allow competitors into a data room, you would require them to set up what is called a clean team. Clean team tends to be people who are not commercially involved in the business of the competitor, who will then be able to examine and summarize in a way that effectively hides that information from those who are commercially involved in the business. So that's mitigant number one, clean teams. Always insist on clean teams. Have very good clean team guidelines in place so that you know what you're doing, who's allowed into the data room, and for what purpose. It can also help you commercially, of course, because you may not want the commercial director of a competitor in your data room. So you may say, terribly sorry, Mr. X, but we just can't let you in. It's our competition lawyers. They're the ones causing the problem. So commercially, it can be quite attractive to do that. So that's sort of the first level of compliance. There is then a whole other level of compliance, which is what do you write down? And remember, everything you write down will be seen by the regulators. And I have to just stop there and say, yes, I agree with that. And you cannot believe the amount of documentation that sometimes, especially in the phase two review, you have to hand over to the regulators. And this is really something that comes as a shock to a lot of clients. When you say to them, look, you know, those emails that you wrote six months ago when you were talking about valuation, they will be handed over to the regulator. And the regulator will look at your valuation and they will look at how you arrived at the number that you arrived at. Or there might be discussions about the competition risk in a non-privileged way. Again, all that will go to the regulators. So it is really important, especially when you involve the bankers, to keep a very tight 
control of the privilege umbrella so that only people who really need to see the advice actually get to see the advice. Once that advice is replicated in various slides produced by the bankers and sent all over the place, you no longer have control of it. So you have lost control over the documents in your deal. And I always say the most important thing is to retain control over the documents in your deal. And as you know, easier said than done. If you work in a complex organization, Chris, you've worked in complex organizations, getting people to resist the temptation to produce slide decks is just one of the hardest parts of my job. And it probably was of yours as well. Yes, I know what you're talking about. So now we get into the situation that there's a possible deal and you're discussing your SPA, your sale and purchase agreement, and now buyer and seller have to agree on who takes what risk. This is where value is at stake, isn't it? So how does that look from a buyer's and a seller's perspective? Perhaps let's take it from the side of the seller first, because the seller obviously has got an offer on the table. They may have gone exclusive. And now is the question, how do you allocate the competition risk in the SPA? Now, If I'm a seller, what do I want? I want a relatively quick deal. So I want the long stop date to be relatively short. I would probably want to have a degree of control over the extension of that long stop date should it be extended. I would also want to know that the purchaser is under an obligation to use at least reasonable endeavours to get the deal done. And that would include offering any necessary remedies. And the question is remedies in phase one or in phase two. As you know, a phase two can be very long and very drawn out. It may be that as a seller, I just don't want a phase two. So I might want to have a reasonable endeavours obligation in phase one with a break fee if it goes into phase two. So the deal might lapse or I'm happy to commit myself and commit my business to a very long drawn out phase two. But then I would want to be very certain that in the phase two, they do everything that they can, some sort of best endeavours obligation to get the deal cleared. Because at the end of the day, as a seller, I'm not in control of that process. I need to make sure that I've got the legal levers in the SPA to force the buyer to do this. And those levers are really reasonable endeavours, best endeavours, break fee, and of course, any sort of negotiation around the long stop date, which I would want to control. And then at a more mundane level, I would want to make sure I've got full transparency to make sure that I know exactly what the buyer is doing at what stage in the process so I can force them to do the right thing at the right stage in the process. So that's on the seller side. I'll just stop there and just see whether you have any reactions to that. Yeah, so if I'm the seller, I want to have the highest price and the highest deal certainty. And I might be tempted to go to this guy who is paying the higher price, which has slightly higher competition risk, because very often that's why they can afford a higher price as well. But then you want to make sure that the risk is in their camp, and these are useful tools to use. Yes, I mean, you make a very good point. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, synergies usually come with competition risk. So whoever is paying more probably can do so because they can achieve synergies, which means they also have competition risk. Yeah, They go hand in hand. It's, it's very logical. And of course, you know, the number of conditions precedent, for example, if someone says, I want to file in Trinidad and Tobago, as a seller, you might want to say, oh, I'm not quite sure that I want to have a Trinidad and Tobago condition in my SPA. I would really like to understand why you need this. Whereas if it's China, then obviously it might be a different situation. 
Okay, so that's that's from the seller's perspective. Now you're the buyer and you don't want to have to, for example, have an obligation to sacrifice your own business only to get this deal through. Uh, there's got to be a limit somewhere. So how do you manage that? Well, I mean, you know, the, the irony of all of this is that when it comes to the stage where as a buyer you have to write an offer letter, you quite often get asked as a competition lawyer to explain why there isn't a competition problem. So you have all this imaginative drafting around, look, we've looked at this, it's all fine. And you're trying to put your best foot forward to get exclusivity, to get chosen. Once you are chosen, of course, the buyer will then say, oh, can we please talk about the competition risk now, which will then come as a bit of a surprise to the sellers. You would typically have that conversation already earlier. Well, it depends. I mean, you're really trying to downplay the competition risk throughout the process up to the point where you really have to start dancing. And at the point where you really have to start dancing, there's then the hard discussion around, well, who's going to take this risk? And essentially what happens generally is that sellers, of course, try to keep the process competitive for as long as possible to try to get you to accept a degree of risk. Now, I would, as a buyer basically try to resist very onerous hello high water type provisions. I might well accept a reasonable endeavours obligation to do something when I understand what that is. Now, we're going to come back later in the podcast on this issue of what are the remedies? Because a behavioural remedy, which just obliges me to behave in a particular way, may be much more acceptable. But of course, those remedies are much less acceptable to the regulators. But, but we used to be in the business of, for example, buying or selling a chain of petrol retail stations. And then the remedy would very often be, okay, but then you have to sell so many because as a buyer, uh, you can't get too dominant in certain areas. And the structural remedy is then you've got to sell them. Yes. So that is the traditional remedy if you have a horizontal problem, because what you do is you look at the local overlaps and you work out where you have too many petrol stations and you sell them. That's called a structural remedy. That's not behaving in a particular way. It's just getting rid of stuff. And the reason why regulators like that type of remedy, of course, is obvious. You do it once and then it's done. You don't have to police it. You don't have to check it. You don't have to have a complaints procedure. It's just done. Now, of course, when you have what is called a vertical issue. So for example, if you have a wholesale business and a retail business and you are effectively buying another retail business or you're buying another wholesale business, then you might have a horizontal issue, but you may also have a vertical issue. And so the question is, how do you resolve those sorts of issues? And then there is a real presumption at the moment operating, at least in the UK, but also to some extent in the US, against just having a behavioural undertaking. And so you really get pushed towards something that's more structural. And of course, that will have an MPV impact immediately on your deal. And so being able to work that out is going to be crucial to the purchaser. Okay. Let me try to summarise the first bit of our conversation, Oliver. So clearly, regulatory risk and merger control filings affect deal value. You can allocate those risks in your negotiation. You should have a good standard of discipline, maybe I should call it that, in your company with regards to documentation, setting up clean teams and etc. to make sure that you don't create problems that will follow you throughout the filing process later. And we got into the subject already of structural and behavioral remedies. Okay, that's a good moment to break and listen to a message from our sponsor, Pilcock. 
Pilko and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. Welcome back to the M&A podcast with Oliver Bretz, an expert on merger violence and competition law. Oliver, a case that's currently in front of the European Merger Commission is Booking.com, the hotel booking site that wants to acquire e-travely. And that's a, what you would call a vertical acquisition because the hotel guys want to buy a flight booking site. And here the European Commission and the UK authorities have a different uh, look at it. Can you explain the difference? I mean, in two sentences, I mean, they're all online travel agents at the most basic level. But of course, one is specialized in flights. The other one is specialized in hotels. And not to put too fine a point on it, I mean, Booking.com has a very large market share. E-Travely has a very small market share. And the whole deal is about what they call an integrated trip. So the ability to book hotels and flights at the same time. Now, very interesting, in the UK, most customers will actually book their flight directly with the airline. So competition is completely outside the online travel agent's market. And so you can see how there might be real differences between the UK on the one hand and continental Europe on the other. So it's not that surprising that you might actually have some quite different issues on the two sides of the channel. Okay. Thank you. And the UK is a bit more careful with behavioural remedies than uh, Europe is. Yes, I think we will talk about Microsoft Activision later, but in, you know that is a very good example of the reason why the, the UK is just very sceptical, fundamentally sceptical about behavioural remedies. So they would much rather have a structural remedy. And the reason for that is really obvious, which is that the UK says we don't want to police these remedies. But of course, when you have a vertical issue in a merger, quite often a behavioral remedy is the most obvious solution to the vertical problem. Yeah, I understand. So maybe go straight to that example that you mentioned. So Microsoft has been working on this for a very long time already. They want to buy Activision, which is a game producer. So uh, very different than their current business. But it really looked difficult for that deal when it was blocked in the UK. Now they're making progress in the US and it's approved in Europe. Again, why the differences? I mean, look, this, I mean, so much has been written about Microsoft Activision. I'm not going to dwell on all the facts, but you have to remember cloud gaming is not a market that currently exists in a very sort of significant way. This is all about the future. And the European Commission accepted a licensing behavioral remedy whereby effectively you would license those Activision games for cloud gaming purposes to consumers so that it could effectively use whichever streaming service and then there was an equivalent license for whatever the streaming service was. So in a way, the European Commission had dealt with it through a behavioral remedy. 
the UK did not accept that as a solution and basically went on to block the deal. And now, of course, the deal has been re-notified to the UK, but with a structural remedy whereby the rights to the cloud gaming get sold to a third party. So that should hopefully resolve the issue. But I think it shows one thing and shows it really clearly, which is that the UK on its own trying to block the Microsoft Activision merger is really out on a limb in circumstances where the US courts didn't block it and the European Commission has approved it. So it just shows that when you are really on your own in a global deal, in a global economy, it is very hard for the UK to say, we're open for business, but hey, we're going to block Microsoft Activision. And you can immediately see the political tension there. It also tells me a bit about, uh, say, the negotiation aspect of a merger filing, that a large part when you get into this discussion about what are possible remedies, structural or behavioral, is an actual negotiation. And not between buyer and seller, but it is a negotiation with the regulator. And there's a real skill in that negotiation. I mean, I think that is really where the real lawyering is done there. But ultimately, these deals get done at the highest levels. I mean, I was talking to you before about a deal that where basically the discussion was between the prime minister of a country and the European Competition Commissioner. That's how the remedy finally got approved. But that was after the lawyers had drafted 264 pages of remedies. So this is really the most important part of a deal. And that is really where experience comes in. It's how do you draft these remedies? So there's another aspect to uh, setting up your deals and something that's come to the fore more recently and an increased matter that's foreign direct investment or national security regimes. And it's already difficult to minimize this time between signing and completion. And now I not only have to worry about, especially for larger organizations or the more sensitive industries with your merger filing, but they also have to get the National Security and Investment Act as here in the UK or CFIUS filing in the US. How do we deal with all of this? Uh, it's almost impossible to get your deals done, Oliver. We all have to deal with it. It's a reality of our lives. I and mean, we don't like it because these regimes are proliferating. If you look at the UK, 17 sectors are now subject to mandatory notification for all deals. And you know, a lot of these deals really do not merit notification. It's always backed up by criminal penalties. So you don't have a choice. You have to file. The good news is that in many of these regimes, you can file very early in the deal because they remain confidential and you can get clearance perhaps even before the SPA is signed. So what we try to do is really minimize the number of conditions. And that's regardless of whether you're acting for the seller or the buyer. Having the smallest number of conditions in your SPA is clearly a good thing. So we try to front load a lot of this. But as I say, it's a political process. And, you know, there's a real question mark, certainly in the EU, because it's national competence. You know, should a country like Denmark, for example, have the ability to block a global deal on national security grounds. It absolutely cries out for the European Commission to do more, to coordinate, and perhaps even to eventually take over the competence. But that's for the future. At the moment, it's at national level. The Commission can only issue opinions, and then it will be up to the member state to decide whether or not to follow that opinion. So broadly, it's a mess. So if I'm selling a business, let's say I'm based in the US or I'm based in Europe, and I've got all these interesting bits, but a lot of bits are from Chinese or Middle Eastern companies. That means I have to discount them? 
No, you don't have to discount them, but you have to assess the risk. Now, you know, you have gradings of risk. At the top, you have Russia. But of course, you know, because of sanctions, those have really sort of Yeah, I already took them off my list. The next level of risk I've had, you know, personal experience of a prohibition decision is for Chinese investors. Chinese investors, in particular in sensitive industries such as semiconductors, you know, that's going to be very difficult. But then you've, of course, got the sovereign wealth funds from other countries, in particular Gulf countries, that could also be regarded with a degree of suspicion. American investors generally fine. But of course, if you have American private equity funds, you need to look who's behind those funds. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, when you create a fund, it is crucially important to know who the investors are when you do the fund creation and perhaps even have the ability to exclude certain investors from certain deals. Thank you. Well, I'll try to summarize some of uh, our rich discussion again here. We talked about the uh, behavioral and structural uh, remedies and the uh, potential that uh, behavioral remedies are more and more accepted, maybe less so in the UK, and give you more options to find solutions to merger filings. Then we went into the foreign direct investment challenges, uh, which are getting bigger these days, and no uh, relief in sight on that, I'm afraid. No, absolutely no relief in sight. And on that uh, uh, news, uh, Oliver, I really would like to thank you for being part of this podcast series about mergers and acquisitions and shining a light on this underappreciated aspect of our work. Thank you very much, Hus. I mean, it's always fun to do this. And I have to say it's, uh, it's a challenge to even do it in 30 minutes. So I hope we succeeded. Well, thank you. And uh, you can look forward to another three episodes of this podcast in the season uh, following in the next few months. If you would like more information or would like to provide some feedback, which would be highly appreciated, please visit pilco.com. Thank you. <laughs>